Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. We've been making our way through this amazing book, showcasing the work of the Spirit through the church, first focusing on Peter and his ministry, and now Paul. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We need it desperately because without it, we would be utterly lost. You reveal yourself. You reveal your plan. You teach us who we are and what you desire of us. We pray, God, that you would teach us today, that we would be changed by it, that our hearts would be renewed through your spirit and your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you've been a Christian long enough or if you've been around Christians long enough, you've, you've probably noticed that Christians are oftentimes weird. And I don't mean weird like, oh, isn't that cute weird? I mean like off-putting, like, like weird weird. And there's a sense in which Christians are going to be weird because we have a book that we believe is God's book. We, be, we believe it's literally God's book, that he revealed himself and gave us a book that is perfect, accurate, and errant. Everything that it says about God and us and his world is true. This is the book that tells us who God is and who we are and what we are to do. We believe this book. That's weird, because the book then tells us how to live in a way that is very different from the world. And so increasingly, we are seen as weird, morally, spiritually, because we follow a book. And that comes with it. That's a part of following Jesus. That's a part of being a disciple, a part of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are going to be seen as an alien, a stranger, an outsider in the world. That's okay. We're supposed to be viewed as weird like that. I don't mean weird like that. I mean that, that sometimes Christians have a tendency, sometimes Christians have a tendency, uh, to be weird where they don't need to be weird. Now, there are a ton of examples, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but maybe an easy one would be uh, there, some Christians, a lot of Christians, used to believe that radio was evil. I don't mean rock music played on the radio. I'm not talking about the jazz being the radio was evil because it was the, the, the spirit of the, of the power of the air. It was the devil's instrument, and you should stay away from the radio. And, and so it's the Christians are no longer seen as weird because of the boundaries of God's book, but they're being viewed as weird because they don't know what they're doing in culture, because they're wrong in some of their approaches. They're just strange. It's like, the, uh, listen, you know I love the Puritans, and, and so much of what happened in that movement was very good. Not all of it. No movement is perfect. But 
Well, a lot of them would argue that, well, listen, you, you can't play cards because if you play cards uh, that in any game of chance, you're basically inherently mocking God's sovereignty because he, he, he's sovereign over all of it. And so they, they would extrapolate, based on a good idea, these weird practices that made them culturally weird when they didn't need to be. Can't see a play. Why? Well, because they're pretending to be somebody they're not. That's lying. Lying is bad. No plays. That's just weird. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we are increasingly going to be viewed as odd or weird because of what the Bible actively tells us to do and to believe. And it'll be important for us to not take up issues that are not demanded by Scripture and equate them with the Bible. So here's a principle I want to give you that is found in this passage that we're going to explore together today. The principle is this. Glorifying Jesus and making disciples requires Christians to be biblically faithful and culturally flexible. Some of you are going to like that. You're going to be like, ooh, I, like it. I think I like where this is going. And others of you are sort of like, oof, getting a little tight because it sounds like moral relativism. I don't mean that at all. I do mean that there are certain aspects of culture where we need to be flexible, accommodating even, embracing even when it is warranted and safe. So glorifying Jesus and making disciples requires Christians to be biblically faithful. Got to start with that and culturally flexible. Hold on to that. That's what we're going to be focusing on throughout our time together. And this really falls into two parts, right? The first part of this, we're going to talk about the, the call or the need, really, the need to be faithful. We're, we're, we need to be faithful because we're called to be faithful, right? There's a calling in our lives towards faithfulness, right? Like submission to the will of God that has been given to us. And then secondly, we're going to talk about being flexible. And the reason, so if the reason we are faithful is because we're called to it, the reason we are flexible is because we care, about the people to whom we've been called to serve. So first, we are to be faithful because we are called. We start in this uh, at verse 1, right? Paul came to Derb and to Lystra. So this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So I want to talk a little bit about this, right? But Paul went on three missionary journeys. We already covered the first, right? We saw this in verses 13 through 14, where Paul and Barnabas, they go through various cities in multiple places. They're preaching the gospel. They're making disciples. They're establishing churches. They're doing all kinds of good work, and God is blessing it. Things are happening. It's super exciting. I mean, Paul, they try to murder Paul. Like, it's crazy. Paul comes back, goes back to Antioch, and he's resting, and he's getting his stuff together, and then he's going to go on his second missionary journey, which is what we're on now, which is he, the plan was, he and Barnabas were going to go and visit all the places that they had already been. But if you remember, there was sort of some static, right? Because Barnabas was like, yeah, let's go, but let's bring John Mark. And John Mark, biblically, was a flake. And so uh, Paul was like, I don't want to take John Mark because he flaked out on us. He, he took off when he shouldn't have. I don't really maybe trust him. He said, I don't want to bring him, so we're not going to do that. And so there began a little bit of static, right, between Paul and Barnabas. And so uh, Barnabas and John Mark did their own thing, and Paul was like, no problem, I'm taking Silas. Silas is my boy. Love this guy. We're going to go do it. So that's the second missionary journey. And then there is a third, roughly, in chapters 18 to 20. So let me just say this about the call to be faithful here. 
All Christians and all churches share the calling or the responsibility to make disciples, right? And we do this in the context of a local church. We're called to make disciples, right? To preach the word, to pray the word, to exist together in a Christian community, which is a, a kingdom of God sort of counterculture in the world, right? So that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be making disciples together. That's our mission as the church. But then there are callings that are more specific, right, to us in our lives. For example, everybody has a calling to a certain kind of vocation. And for some people, that's in an office. For other people, it's in a trade. For other people, their vocation is to stay at home and be with the children, right? The vocation, the work that you do, this is a calling that God has specifically on your life, specific for you, at least for a time. Paul's uh, vocation was to be an apostle, right? Uh, to be a, a preacher. And part of his calling was to go on these missionary journeys. So that's what he's doing. So part of his calling. So he's being faithful, faithful to God to do it. He's hitting bumps along the way, just like we all do. Couldn't take his man Barnabas with him. He was bummed out about that. John Mark didn't want to take him. The guy was weird. So now he's got a new plan. Here he goes. Paul and Silas, let's go. And they hit Derb. They hit Lystra. And let me say this about Lystra. I think this is important. There are church planting networks and groups and, and church planting gurus and authors, uh, missiologists, right? These are all good things, they're not bad things. Uh, but a lot of them adopt this philosophy, this mindset, right, that our focus and our emphasis in church planting and missions is to focus on the cities, the urban core, the, the, the densely populated areas. That's where we're going to put our attention and our efforts, and leftovers can go to rural communities and countrysides. Um, this is not the biblical way. Of course, uh, we see this with Paul, right? Paul goes to big cities, and he goes to small towns. He goes to Lystra. You know what Lystra was? A nothing. It was like a no big deal. I'm not saying that like dismissively, like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm saying like, in terms of measuring up against major cities, it was nothing to, to think about. And yet that's where he went, one of the places that he went on his first missionary journey, to preach the gospel and make disciples. Here's the thing. Some people are called to densely populated urban areas, and other people are called to more rural community, uh, country contexts. And that's fine. That's great because we're not all wired for the same things. But we do not want to, as a church, say that we think it is best to leave behind the small towns in favor of the large towns. Instead, we ought to have a better understanding of calling and what God has called us to do as churches and as individuals and not try to sell it as if our calling is everybody's responsibility as well. Anyway, there in Lystra, obscure town, Nothing to note, really, culturally significant. Although in Acts 14, the first time Paul was there, they did try to kill him because uh, they, you know, some people weren't so happy with the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. But this is where Timothy is from. He meets Timothy here. You see this in chapter 16, verse 1. Oh, there was a man named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. Who is Timothy? Well, Timothy is a disciple who we know later becomes a pastor. In fact, First and Second Timothy, those two letters in the New Testament, those are written to him later on when he is a pastor. 
So we have this young guy who uh, is going to become a pastor. He's going to be well-known. He's, he's, he's already respected, right? He has a great reputation. But what we know about him is that he's got a Jewish mom and a Greek dad, right? So a Jewish mom that would share the scriptures with them, uh, but a Greek father who came from a different culture, a different context, a different belief system. We don't know what the home life was like, uh, but we do know that it, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I like to think that it was at least as healthy as it could be. Because on the one hand, we know that young Timothy wasn't observing all of the, the Jewish customs and laws, maybe as his mom would like. Uh, he wasn't circumcised, for example. But he was acquainted with the scriptures. And so he was being taught and instructed or indoctrinated by his mom and, we'll see, his grandma. So something good was happening in the home. Uh, young Timothy is, is growing up. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, let me just read you two passages. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Here's one of the things that Paul says to Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you, which is just pretty sweet to think that this, this young man who was a believer and now a pastor he got there because he had a mom and a grandma that invested uh, the truth into his, into his life. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14 says, here's what Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, right? grandma and mom, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So this is Timothy. So Paul and Silas, they're there. They're, uh, they're in Lystra. They're, they're talking to Timothy, and uh, he is chosen by Paul. Paul's like, I want to take you with now, is this because he needs a replacement because John Mark was supposed to go? Is he John Mark's replacement? Maybe. I don't know. But, uh, but Paul wants the right kind of people around him, and he loves this young dude, Timothy. He's like, I've been at this for a little while. I want to take you with me. We're going to do this together. Exciting stuff. And um, it's, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I imagine it going down something like this, like... Uh, Timothy and Leslie, we would love to have you join us on this mission. It's going to be a great second missionary journey. We're going to go to all the places we've been before. We're going to check up on the people. going to preach the gospel. They're probably going to try and kill us again. It's going to be exciting. Do you want to go? Are you, going to, are you up for this? And Timothy's like, I can't believe it. I've been praying about something like this. I can't believe I'm going with Paul. This is great. And Paul's like, cool, cool. Um, just got to do one thing quick. No big deal. Uh, before we go, just got to get, got to get circumcised. It's like, take a minute. Not going to be a big deal. Uh, I know you're a grown adult now, and uh, it's usually done when you're an eight-day-old baby. But um, yeah, yeah, so you're cool with that, right? We can just kind of boom, boom, get it done. Uh, Timothy does not seem to have a problem with it at all, but um, if, if you could take a step back from being super familiar with the stories or even what circumcision is, this would be a deal breaker for a lot of candidates at a lot of churches. Like, I was like, no, thank you. I do not want to uh, experience this as any kind of condition for, for ministry. So here's the thing. When a lot of pastors, myself included, talk about circumcision, we just sort of like assume or pretend that everybody knows what circumcision is and why it was done because we don't want to talk about it, right? Just would rather just kind of move along and just get to the next thing. Uh, but let's get into it. Let's talk about circumcision. 
So, okay, I, I, I couldn't come up with a really good way to explain what it is, so I found a good way that I'm just going to quote from somebody else. Circumcision is the removal of foreskin from the male reproductive organ. I feel like that's a pretty safe way to put it. I'm glad I didn't go with my original one. Now, this one's way better. <laughs> it is the removal of the foreskin of the male sexual organ. Now, here in, in, in America, in the West, this has become such a common practice that many people are familiar with it. Uh, it's not weird. Uh, and at this point, whether you are or aren't isn't an issue in terms of health or, or, or safety or anything like that. Um, there are different opinions on, on whether or not it, you should still do this today. We're not getting into all of that. But that's what it is. It's the removal of foreskin uh, of a male sexual organ by, uh, by someone qualified to do it uh, for the child in the Jewish context who is eight days old. This first shows up in Genesis 17. In Genesis, God, God initiates a covenant with Abraham. You see, read about this in uh, chapters 12, 15, and 17. He starts this covenant with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I know that you and your wife can't have kids, but I'm going to give you a child. And not only a child, I'm going to give you so many offspring that you will form a nation. In fact, your offspring are going to be so many, uh, they will outnumber the stars. In fact, through your offspring, uh, I'm going to bless the entire world the promise fundamentally is, listen, through you will come the Savior who saves sinners. That's really what's happening. And in this context, he says, now, the sign of this covenant between me and you and your, your descendants is going to be circumcision. That's going to be the sign of this particular covenant. Let's just look at one passage, Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Goes on to explain eight days old and the rest of those details. So that's where it comes from. It starts right here, Genesis 17. Circumcision becomes a mark or a sign, a symbol of this covenant relationship that God has with Abram, his descendants, which will become Israel. And then circumcision becomes a part of the Mosaic covenant as well, right? Which is what we call the old covenant. All of these covenants are preparing Israel and really preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus and a new and better covenant that would one day come. So, okay, so that's what circumcision is. It's for Jewish male children, eight days old, a sign of the covenant. But still why? Still why? Why cut? Why bleed? Why pain? Why can't it be something else? And the reason is because this bloody and painful ritual signifies God's salvation is going to come through pain and through blood and through the offspring or the seed of Abraham. There's a guy named Barry York. He sounds like a DJ, but he's the president of a seminary. Barry York um, is the president of Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and he has a great article on circumcision and what it was really sort of indicating or signifying. So I just want to read you three points that he makes. 
Circumcision in the Old Covenant signifies, one, that sin needs to be removed, right? So it became a metaphor of sorts, right? The foreskin was cut off and discarded, and in the, in the same way, sin needs to be cut off and discarded. It was just a sort of a picture. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we read, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. Circumcision was a picture, right? A a picture of removal of, of sin, perhaps even of regeneration, right? A change of heart. It was a picture of something far deeper. That's one. Second, circumcision in the Old Covenant signified that salvation would come by blood and pain. Now, you can still not like that these babies are experiencing this level of discomfort at eight days old, um, but this is the reasoning that we see coming through our understanding of God's revelation. This small cut that is bloody and painful is a small picture of the great truth of Christ's sacrifice. And number three, circumcision in the Old Covenant signifies that it is the seed of Abraham, right? The offspring of Abraham that will bring salvation. Like in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where God says to Abraham, in you all of the nations are going to be blessed. All of them. How is that possible? Because not all are physically a part of the lineage. It's because the seed, the offspring, Jesus himself brings salvation. So this was a sign of the old covenant, and it gave a picture of these things and and, and more. And the old covenant has given way to the new covenant, right? All the covenants that we see throughout the Old Testament, right? Even the covenant made with Noah, right? uh, So we have that. We have this Abrahamic covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. These covenants are continuously pointing us forward to a new and better covenant, Right? And this new and better covenant is the one in which Christ is fully revealed. It is the one in which Jesus makes full and complete atonement for sins through his death on the cross. And the sign of that covenant is not circumcision. Thank goodness. <laughs> it's water. Water's great, man. Like, I was just... Uh, so what's the last, last sign was like getting circumcised. What's the, like, oh, we're just going to like dunk you in water. And like everybody's like, this is great. This is so cool. Just get dunked. Picture of cleansing, unity with Jesus, burial, resurrection, symbolism still, no pain, all about it. Okay, so great. And Timothy seems to know this. Ha <laughs> ha, escaped. Let's go. I've been baptized and I'm good to go. And Paul says, no, you need to be circumcised. Now, this could be a problem, right? Because there are people out there that have wonky ideas about circumcision. Say, like, listen, in order for you to even be accepted by God, you have to be circumcised. And when that's the case, Paul is the first one to say, close your mouth. You're speaking heresy. This is not acceptable. But here he's saying, no, in fact, I want you to be circumcised. Why? Why is this? Um, Well, that's that's really the heart of what I think we need to, to wrestle with today. And the passage that I think helps us do this is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Just listen to what Paul, same Paul says here, 1 Corinthians 
9, 19. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. For Paul, to win somebody is to, is to see them won over by the gospel, right? To see somebody trust in Christ. It's to count somebody as a convert, right? It's not a game to Paul. He's not being arrogant. Look, we're going to win. He's, he's excited because when he preaches the gospel, God overcomes man's unbelief and people are one to Jesus. So that's all he's saying. So he says, listen, I become a servant to everyone because I want to see as many people saved as possible. So he, he explains, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some." And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. So note Paul's heart and what he's doing. Paul is saying, listen, I adapt, I accommodate, I take on and embrace various aspects of particular cultures so that I can draw near to people and have a relationship with them and share the gospel with them so that they can share salvation with me. That's what he's saying. So when he's like, why, why is he having Timothy be circumcised? Because glorifying Jesus and making disciples requires Christians to be biblically faithful and culturally flexible. It is advantageous for Timothy to be circumcised. It will be helpful for him to be circumcised. If he's not circumcised, it becomes an issue. Not in that he is going against biblical standards, but in that people are going to obsess about why this guy who isn't circumcised but has a Jewish mother and he's, he's preaching these Old Testament scriptures and so what's going on? It's going to become a distraction. So it makes sense to be flexible here to adopt this principle so here, like, the, the idea is we're called to be faithful, right? Faithful to God's word. This is the first thing, right? We want to be flexible because we care about people. But to be flexible, you first have to have some sort of foundation that is faithfulness, obedient to God. So we're going to put God's word, um, establish it as the unerring rule. It is perfect. But we are to be flexible in the world, in culture, in matters of indifference. Hear that. We are to be flexible and adaptive to cultural issues that are not of any moral or spiritual significance. In other words, when you are in a particular culture at any given time in history, where lawful, you should be willing to accommodate. Lawful, that's an old word. I don't mean legal. It's an old word that theologians used to use to mean according to God's word, or biblical. Wherever it is permissible for you, wherever it doesn't violate God's word, for you to do something culturally, you can do that thing, and oftentimes you maybe should do that thing. You can accommodate the people to whom you're trying to preach to or reach with the gospel by accommodating, embracing, adapting your own practices to the culture of the time, even adopting practices. 
In other words, we're talking about there are times when you will embrace cultural norms that are not yours. And so sometimes this is going to be very casual, very relational, very one-on-one. Other times it's going to be in a missionary context where you're going somewhere uh, that you have not been raised. And you will embrace cultural norms that are lawful, like you're allowed to do them biblically, because you're going to be biblically weird already. We want you to be biblically weird. Being biblically weird is fun and cool until they want to kill you. It's not so much. It's not so fun after that point. But until then, it's pretty good. Being biblically weird, I'm all about it. But culturally, you don't need to be culturally weird because when you are, you are simply creating extra barriers to people hearing the gospel because they don't want to hear it from you because you're the weirdo. Not because of what the Bible is saying about you, but because what you are saying about the world. And the part of the problem here is that we like to adopt certain things that we think that resonate with us, and we like these things so much that we then elevate them to a place of importance where we find our identity in them. And so now it's almost as if we can't live apart from those secondary cultural trappings. Well, this means we are not being flexible. We need to embrace cultural norms whenever lawful because embracing cultural norms when lawful, when it's good, when it's not perverted and and evil, it allows us to actually draw near to people. Because when you adopt cultural practices of the people to whom you have been sent, and that's here, by the way, for us, right? When you do that, you are not pretending. You're not putting on a dress and just putting on a mask and pretending to be something you're not. What you're doing is you are participating in a a culture that God wants you to have some some stakes in. You're participating. This is not some kind of cultural appropriation. There's a lot of discussion about cultural appropriation. By the way, most of what you read on the internet about cultural appropriation is all nonsense. However... The issue is a real issue, and we need to be able to work through it. So let me just say this. When you adapt to and adopt cultural norms that are not uh, originally your own because you are trying to reach people with the gospel by becoming a part of a community that you actually care about, um, this is coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of, of respect And it's coming with the aim that you want to be able to be a part of their lives. You want to be a part of this community because you want them to be a part of the kingdom of God. You want them to experience God's grace. And so it's it's, it's not about using people. It's not about taking from. It's about participating in and giving. See, our... Look... The reason we do this fundamentally is because the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. It's for every class, right? It's for every economic, social class. Well, you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be in between. The gospel is for you. You could be from any tribe, you can speak any language, you can come from any nation. Every ethnicity, every people group, everybody is offered the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. God's love is offered to everyone. Christ died for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So this is why it matters, because we find ourselves in various cultures at different times with the responsibility of preaching the gospel and making disciples. And some of you think, like, well, what are you talking about? I've lived here my whole life. I mean, I grew up here. I lived here my whole life. So how am I? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? What I'm saying is, is we need to understand that, 
that this world is not our home, that, that this culture in a sense is ours, but in a deeper sense it is not because we, we are members of a different kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven. We live under the rule of a different leader or king. That's, that's Jesus, and so it changes everything for us. And, and our kingdom export, we do have an export. Our kingdom export is not any one particular culture, but it is the gospel itself. That's what we take. Because you, can, you should be able to go to any Christian church anywhere in the world, in any century since the beginning, and you should be able to find like, wow, you know what? Same gospel, same Bible, same love, same charity, same fruit of the spirit, but they all look wildly different culturally. Because it's not, a, it's not a plug and play culture that we're exporting. It is a gospel that actually plants roots in culture. And then out of that culture rises up churches that preach a faithful gospel and make true disciples for that particular people and era. Our aim in all of this is to share salvation with the lost. Now, let me just say this as well. We do this because we care. We do this because we love people. We do this because we're sent. We, we, but we do this because God did it first. God did it first. The word is contextualize, to contextualize and accommodate. God did it first. Because what did God do? God spoke to sinners. And to speak to sinners, what did he have to do? Well, he had to dumb it down a little bit because he's infinite and we're fallen and finite. So he had to dumb it down. Then he had to speak to us in a language we could understand. That's called accommodation or contextualization. And then he went on and he started using all kinds of anthropopathisms and anthropomorphisms and figures of speech that we could understand because our brains are too small to comprehend God. So he says things like, well, I have eyes and hands and feathers and wings too. Not that he actually has these things, but because they do give us a better understanding of what God is truly like, at least in part. So God accommodates us. Even in the Old Testament, when God says, hey, listen, I'm going to make you into a nation. He didn't invent nations on the spot. Nations had been around for a while. And he, then when he gave them law, he used the law forms that were in vogue at the time. It wasn't some altogether new idea. Laws? Codified? What is this? They knew what this stuff was. Other nations were using them. And he goes, well, here's what we're going to do. So God accommodates sinners. He stoops to draw near what did he do, really? He sent his son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to, to adopt a human nature, to get close to us, right? To preach the gospel to us, to save us. God did it first. That's why we do it. So let me just make um, four brief, quick points here um, in all of this. Timothy is told by Paul, listen, excited for you to be here. It's going to be a great time. You need to be circumcised. Why? Because if you aren't circumcised, it's going to be one extra thing that we have to deal with. And what are we trying to do? Preach the gospel and make disciples. If you're agreeable to it, we're agreeable to it. Let's get this done, and then we can just sidestep that whole issue because it shouldn't even be an issue. We don't want to focus on that. And Timothy says, let's go. Or he goes, let's go. <laughs> I don't know how he said it. But he said, let's go. Let's do it. Now, what this means for us is to adopt the mindset. We ought to have the mindset that Paul had, that Timothy had, that we are willing to become all things to all people while maintaining 
faithfulness to God's word. So four things. Number one, we must be as Christians and as a local church biblically faithful. That means we have to know God's word, study God's word. We have to take it seriously and commit ourselves to walking in God's ways, right? It is his word, not ours. So we read it and we heed it, right? It is, it is the rule for us. It is life-giving to us. It's not just a rule. It's life-giving. It is powerful. So we must be biblically faithful in all of our uh, living in the world. Number two, we should be culturally flexible, which means we should be willing to accommodate without compromise, right? We want to accommodate people by speaking to them in ways that they can understand and interacting with them and in ways that are normative in the, in the culture and in the day. We want to participate in our culture, but we, yes, we should participate in purity. Like we, we should be pure, right? We should seek to be righteous in what we're doing. Um, we should be able to appreciate the good things that are in the culture because every culture is, a, is sort of a, a mash bill made up of like, well, there's some, there's some good stuff in there that you can just receive and rejoice in, like certain forms of art or food, chicken wings, like whatever it is, you can enjoy certain things. And then there are other things that are just inherently evil and perverse, like human trafficking, pornography, abortion, things like this. Like, these things are evil. These things are bad. We want to reject those things. And then there's just a whole lot of brokenness that are crying out for healing and, and restoration. We got to know the difference. So we need to be biblically faithful, culturally flexible. And number three, we have to know who we are. Because if we don't know who we are, if we don't know what defines us, if we don't know where our home is, then we will confuse or conflate many of the ideas and gifts of a particular culture with the will of God. And then hold those things out to people as if this is what following Jesus is all about. What we have to know is, is that we are united to Jesus. We are Christians. We are in him, reconciled to God. We are now the children of God, adopted, loved forever, cleansed forever, always acceptable. God is with us. He is changing us. Like, who are you? Not your name, not your job. Who are you? We are defined as the friends of God, the children of God, the offspring of Abraham by faith. And number four, you have to know yourself, but you have to know your aim. What is your aim? Our aim ought to be the same as Paul's, same as Timothy's, and the same aim as Jesus, is the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. Because when that's your aim, all of a sudden your own cultural preferences become a little less important. You're become more flexible with what you might have to endure in life in order to communicate the gospel effectively and make disciples. This is a hard thing for, for some of us to learn. But glorifying Jesus and making disciples does require us to not only be biblically faithful, but culturally flexible. And let me make this point finally in conclusion here, and that is that the Christians here have, have at least a sense of what I'm trying to communicate. I think most of us know what, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm attempting to say, right? Let's be faithful to our Savior, right, but accommodating to the world where we can. Remove distractions and obstacles. But if you're not a believer, if you don't know Jesus, 
The reason we're taking all of this seriously is because what we want more than anything for you is for you to know the Jesus that we know. We want to be the kind of people that are willing to lay aside preferences, our preferences, um, our cultural interests on your behalf so that you might actually share with us in what matters the most, what defines us and makes us, because that is God's love, and that's not just for us. That is for the world, including you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us your word that you would convict us, encourage us, and then change us, that you would maintain a spirit of unity, a joy of salvation, even when we have to mourn our own sins. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a growing passion to reach the lost with the gospel and that we would be willing to lay down not just our preferences but our own lives for the sake of those who might come to know Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.